Uh, my next guest is Chris Aubeck, who's uh, unleashed a massive project, impressive in its scope, volume one of what he calls Alien Artifacts from Antiquity to 1880, the forgotten story of how we came to believe in visitors from the stars. Chris is the founder of the historical research group Magonia Exchange. It's an international archival project. He's the author of a dozen articles in English and Spanish. He contributes to radio programs in Europe, delivers talks on the subject of the evolution of UFOs as cultural history. Of note, he's the co-author of a book called Wonders in the Sky, along with Dr. Jacques Vallée, a a terrific volume that we will talk about a little bit uh, from now. And he will join us, Chris, that is, in just a moment here on Coast to Coast AM. Chris Aubeck is one of the best writers and scholars dealing with the UFO topics in the world, and we're thrilled to welcome him to the Coast to Coast program for the first time. Chris, great to have you here. Hey, hi. Good morning from Spain. <laughs> Good morning. To again. It's, uh, it's, it's great to have you here. And uh, so this project, uh, you know, I read in the beginning how, how it started, I think, 22 years ago, 21 years ago. Uh, what, what was the impetus for it? Well, um, firstly, the, uh, about 22 years ago, I set up the Magonia Exchange Group, which is a, it's, it's a small community of about 100, between 100 and 200 members on the Internet, which is comprised of like um, authors, researchers, even university professors who are dedicated to looking for clues in um, like uh, newspaper archives and and old books from the 18th, 19th century um, to see how far back the UFO phenomenon actually goes. So about 20 years ago, uh, I decided to to find out whether our ancestors had the same beliefs as we do today, whether they also believe that um, we live in a populated universe, um, which was full of planets, of um, full of intelligent beings, and whether those beings were visiting us. Because what I realized was that most of the information that, that we know about comes from scientists who, who left um, a written record of their philosophical beliefs on the subject of a plurality of inhabited worlds. And they never really speculated about whether beings from elsewhere visited us or not. But the guy in the street, normal people, farmers, uh, shopkeepers, uh, bartenders, um, they did have opinions. And curiously enough, I found that they did believe that um, beings from other planets were visiting us. That is to say, um, around the time of the of the American Civil War, people had very, very similar ideas about the universe and our place in it, um, as we do today. And I decided that that's worth writing a book about. And uh, that's what I've been doing over the last 20 years, piecing all that together. Well, it's an amazing uh, amount of research that went into this. There are a couple of hints that you drop in this volume one that you spent a heck of a lot of your youth in libraries and dusty old archives going through books. I, I can't imagine uh, that there are a lot of people in the world who would uh, would spend so much time and at that such a young age doing that. Well, yeah, I've been building my my own collection of, of UFO cuttings since I was uh, about 15 years old, and now I'm 51. And um, 
during this time, uh, I've, I've amassed what I believe to be the largest collection of historical UFO reports in, in the world. And this has been an, an invaluable resource to, to, to get to the bottom of this, to find out when ufology was actually born. Uh, so through my group, Magonia Exchange, uh, we've, we've collected over 40,000 cuttings uh, since we, we started in April 2003. And then I've also been sent um, other researchers, entire collections of cases. And of course, when I add, add this to what I've been collecting myself since I was uh, a young man, in England, um, it's just a huge amount of data. So over the last over the last ten years or so, I've I've withdrawn from uh, sort of actively posting about it uh, through my group or online, and just trying to to work out exactly what happened, how it evolved, and the conclusions are really interesting because uh, even even though you can see how ufology has evolved. Um, both culturally, almost as a literary phenomenon, it doesn't negate the existence of, of UFOs. Of course, it just it just means that we have to be quite careful um, not to reinvent the wheel. Because 150 years ago, we were saying basically the same things. <laughs> you know, a lot of people. You've heard the argument uh, over the years that uh, a lot of what we think of as real with UFOs and aliens came from Hollywood. You know that every time there's a new alien invasion movie comes out, that comes out, that uh, it causes spikes in UFO reports. But in fact, uh, as you've learned and as you documented very well, uh, this story, this basic story, has been around a really long time. How far back does it go? Well, you can go back to well. It's a, it, it depends on, on whether we're talking about the belief in extraterrestrials in general, the idea of. Um, of a plurality of inhabited worlds, or the idea that maybe they are actually visiting us, or that they they, they have that capacity. So, the the theory that um, we live in an an, in, an inhabited universe started in ancient Greece. Uh, in fact, um, the ancient Greeks uh, had a school called um, atomism, um, which was founded by Lucipus and Democritus in, in, in the 5th century BC. And they believed there were many solar systems like ours. And they said that um, most of these solar systems would contain living things like ourselves. And all of this was because they, they reached the conclusion that uh, at a microscopic level, all of matter was uh, composed of atoms, and that the same the same patterns would be replicated throughout the universe, um, which is incredible in itself. Because of course they didn't have microscopes at the time; there was no way to prove it. And that, of course, meant that the, the, the this this whole school of thought uh, didn't last very long because uh, they just they just couldn't prove any of it. But that that's the conclusion they reached. Then um, over the next uh, 500, 600 years, there was a certain amount of uh, speculation about life on the moon, life on other planets. Then when you get to um, medieval times, when you, when you reach the, the, the Christian period, uh, theologians um, weren't happy about the idea that we were living in a, in, a, in a highly populated universe because they preferred to believe the, the, that God had created the Earth 
as a as a unique um, thing, as a, as a, we, we were totally unique in in the cosmos, uh, and so it was almost prohibited to to talk about the possibility of life uh, outside outside the Earth. But then um, in the year 1277, um, a bishop in in Paris decided that um, well we we shouldn't be trying to put limits on on God's creativity, and we shouldn't expect God to to let us know if He has built other other worlds and other uh, planets. So um, let's accept that maybe maybe other other life exists in space. So after that. After that meeting they had in Paris uh, in the 13th century, uh, theologians started talking about it again. And that was the case for, for several hundred years. Uh, there was lots of debate in, in, in the church uh, at all levels about whether uh, Jesus Christ had uh, incarnated on multiple planets, maybe had died an infinite number of times to save to save mankind from from uh, some kind of primeval sin, and um, then around the 16th century, uh, people started writing science fiction about this kind of topic. But then, around the 17th century, 18th century, that became a lot more serious, and it seems that uh, that that was around the time that um, there was serious speculation about whether life could be visit, visiting us uh, from other planets, whether we were receiving um, delegations of, of visitors from, from Mars and so on, uh, particularly the moon at that time, of course. That was the, the planet of choice. Yeah, the moon was the big one. I, I was amazed by how many of the, the biggest names in the history of science were uh, weighed in on this. I mean, you have Aristotle early on not being uh, a proponent of it, but Cicero and Plutarch, you say, were open to the idea of life, I think, on the moon. And, and there were some pretty colorful accounts of what that life might look like. Uh, that far back, what were they speculating about? Yeah, exactly. Um, so at, the, at that time, uh, a lot of people used the word planet to, de- to describe the moon. And um, that, that's quite interesting because that way they could envision uh, a moon with um, valleys and forests and, and buffalo roaming, roaming the plains and so on. I mean, um, there's a, a professor emeritus of humanities at the University of Notre Dame, Michael J. Crow, who noted that during the Enlightenment period, uh, most intellectuals participated in the debate over extraterrestrial life, and the vast majority of them favored the idea of a plurality of worlds. So you have scientists like Galileo Galilei, who deduced that life on the moon would be very different from life on Earth, and uh, René Descartes, who who said that, that God could have created wonderful beings everywhere. And there were so many books published on this, on this topic. I, I, I could say that there are probably more books um, about extraterrestrial life uh, on the lo- in the in the local bookshop uh, in the 18th century than than you'll than you'll find these days. It's um, <laughs> an amazing time, you know. I, I thought some of the most entertaining uh, anecdotes and incidents that you dug up were of people, writers uh, in, the, in those eras, who used the idea of people on the moon or other planets uh, in in terms of as literary devices and also as sarcasm. 
Yeah, that's right. Because um, what happened was that when it was it, when 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 scientists reached the conclusion that meteorites really could come from from outer space and weren't just carried by the wind from volcanoes on Earth. That was the the, the original theory. Um, this opened up a whole new um, sort of genre of, of of speculation, science fiction, satire, and a lot more like that. Uh, people said, well, you know, if meteorites can come from other planets, if if that meteorite formed part of um, of a planet that exploded or had been on the side of a of a volcano that that erupted and was shot off into space maybe any temples houses people cemeteries built around that volcano um could also have ended up flying through the solar system and coming to earth so there was a period in the 19th century when um they used the the, the idea of of the ex, of an extraterrestrial being um, to uh, as, as a kind of offensive way to describe people who are slightly different, who uh, <laughs> maybe of a different color, of a different religion, um, who just dress differently, and they'd say, "Well, this guy looks like he's just come down from from Jupiter. This this guy looks like he's just come out of a meteorite from from Mars." So um, it was at the beginning of the 19th century that um, this started. To, to to happen when when people started saying, well, maybe strange people really are from other planets. Um, it, it was also a period when when um, satirists started saying, well, the president might be from another planet because his opinions are very strange or his policies don't make any sense. Uh, and they started inventing tales about about uh, spaceships that had landed. Uh, in Tenerife or in in or any, anywhere, to be honest, there's um, there, there are lots of stories about strange uh, spaceships from from the moon, from Mars, from Venus that landed in big cities. Um, that way, they could explain um, why local politicians uh, were so strange and had such absurd ideas. So it, it it became a very big topic, and it, it was it was something that uh, everybody joined in. It was, um, I mean, practically everybody had an opinion about about extraterrestrials at the time. You know, one of the things that uh, pops up in modern UFO books they they want to make an argument that science can often be wrong. They they will point out that for uh, a long time, even as recently as I think the 1700s, uh, scientists, leading scientists, did not believe that rocks could fall from the sky. You mentioned that they, they thought maybe they were spewed by uh, volcanoes or something like that. They just couldn't believe it. And then, of course, you know, people living out in the country and in rural areas whose opinions didn't carry much weight, they keep telling them these things are real, they're coming out of the sky, and eventually science changed its mind. You you make the point in the in this book about many times about leading scientists of their eras who have what, uh, what pretty wacky theories about uh, what was going on, people living on the sun, for example, and, and other things that we know uh, now are absolutely preposterous. Yeah, it's, uh, it's quite interesting. I mean, um, there's this theory in the 18th century that the sun could be inhabited. And the idea was even presented as evidence in a court case in 1787 involving a scientist called Dr. John Elliot, 
who had shot, perhaps accidentally, um, a young woman on the streets of London. And his defense lawyer said he was insane. And anyone who didn't think so could look at his work about life on the sun. And the fact is, this, this theory was not uncommon at the time. And it was, it was proposed by notable scientists such as uh, Sir Frederick William Herschel, the, the man who discovered uh, Ur uh, Uranus. Um, it's interesting because um, when I was uh, 14, 15, 16 years old, I used to talk to um, a British author of ancient astronaut books, uh, W. Raymond Drake, who lived in, in Sunderland. And he, he wrote uh, many of the first um, books on this topic before Eric von Daniken did. And uh, I used to call him on the phone and we used to chat for a while. And he told me once that um, he believed that uh, there was life on the sun and that uh, some UFOs came from the sun. This is a very, very old idea. The idea being that the center of the sun is, is completely cool and um, what, we, what, what radiates um, all of the energy and heat is just a, a kind of um, aura that's, that's around the sun that um, somehow UFOs must penetrate it if they, if they come to Earth, uh, but it doesn't allow us to see what's happening there. So this is a, a three or even 400-year-old idea that survived till the 20th century. In, in fact, if you pick up um, a copy of um, W. Raymond Drake's uh, 1964 book, Gods, Gods and Spacemen, I think Gods or Spacemen, um, he has a chapter on, on life on the sun. Uh, yeah, there were a lot of very interesting theories floating around at the time. And that's why I say sometimes, I mean, there, there, were probably, there was probably more speculation about extraterrestrial life 300 years ago than, than there is today. You have so many great uh, excerpts and uh, entertaining uh, pieces taken from books, newspaper articles from uh, all over Europe. It must be pretty handy to be able to speak Spanish and read French and, and English as well. And I can just imagine you going through, sifting through these dusty old archives and coming across treasures that no one else has ever found before or for a well, couple hundred true. years. That's that's why these days I've got to wear glasses, I think. Uh, the <laughs> same thing uh, happened to Charles Ford in his day. Uh, he used to spend um, hours and hours sitting in the, uh, in, the, in, in the libraries in London and New York, uh, going through old newspapers and taking notes. Of course, these days I, I just uh, take a photo on the, on the mobile phone or I, I make a note on the laptop. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's something that um, you have to be uh, quite dedicated to. I mean... These days, you do have the possibility of, of, of searching millions, hundreds of millions of pages with a single click. Right. Um, yeah. If you go to uh, – there, there are a lot of uh, sites like newspapers.com, newspaperarchive.com, and that really, really helps. It, 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 it does save you a lot of time. <laughs> We're going to go to a break. Chris Aubach, Alien Artifacts, Volume 1 is the book. We're talking with Chris Aubach about an ambitious research project, Volume 1, Alien Artifacts, the forgotten story of how we came to believe in visitors from the stars. He's got great examples of newspaper stories that turned out to be hoaxes, tales about aliens, uh, ETs, uh, saucers, and uh, not saucers, but uh, vehicles from other planets. Going to get into those, uh, hear about how they uh, were made their way into newspapers and how people took them seriously right after this on Coast to Coast AM. 
Chris, you have some great examples of newsmen, journalists who are writing for newspapers, presumably actual news, who write these tall tales that turn out to be completely false, made up. I can recall, you know, Mark Twain when he came to Nevada here and wrote some tall tales for a newspaper in Virginia City. It was kind of laughed at and everything. But some of these were uh, the examples that you use were taken seriously for a very long time. It's true. Uh, throughout the 19th century, there were so many um, newspapers in, 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 the, in the United States that a way of selling them to the public. I mean, there were actually four or five local newspapers in some in some small towns. That, that one way to, to gain readership was to make up stories. And many of them uh, had to do with um, meteorites that fell from space, meteorites covered in, in hieroglyphics sometimes, um, crashed spaceships, and even weird extraterrestrial creatures running around the, the desert and the uh, and these newspapers would try to to get together um, a, a kind of a posse to go and look for them, hunt them down, and, and bring them back. So yeah, it, it was something that was also done to attract tourism. So um, there were tales of crash spaceships um, <laughs> just outside of town, and then they'd publicize this to to see if they could get as many people to come to visit the town as possible. And well, often when they works. arrived, they'd say, if you want, if you want evidence of, of this spaceship that's just mysteriously disappeared, by the way, you're not going to find it now, come to our, our local bar and, and you'll find there a piece of metal that, that belonged to that, to that ship. So uh, it's, it was an interesting ploy to, to, to generate tourism. But as I always say, none of this means that, um, that, that UFOs didn't exist at the time, because simultaneously, there were some very good reports. I mean, simultaneously, people did pay more attention to the sky, because there was so much talk of extraterrestrial visitors, that, uh, obvi- you know, there, there were lots of good reports, good sightings being made, uh, because it became such um, a popular pastime to, to look out of the window and stare at the clouds. Uh, you personally did the research in exposing some of these stories, these hoaxes that were reported long ago and survived into modern times, were rep- repeated uh, into, you know, this in 19th century, 20th century, 21st century by UFO authors, right? Yeah, that's right. Um, for example, uh, there's the story from a place called Carcarana, which is in Argentina, about a, a spaceship that, that crashed uh, around the year 1870. And um, it involved an extraterrestrial mummy that was, that was found and taken to a local hotel and put on exhibition. And people went there to have a look at all of these hieroglyphics and, and strange metal plaques uh, with uh, drawings of, of, of planets and things on them. And this, this tale, which I found in Spanish, um, had actually been based on one published in French uh, six years before that uh, in Paris. And what happened at the time was a lot of stories were were just being repeated constantly, and the names were changed and the places were changed. But then in the 20th century, a lot of um, modern ufologists have found these. They've rediscovered them, thought they were real, um, and put them into books. So the Carcarana uh, tale, for example, appears in, in several 
um, UFO catalogs of the 20th and, and 21st century. And if you look these things up online, you'll find people going out there with um, with uh, uh, metal detectors, uh-huh. uh, trying to find you know the the, the nuts and bolts from these fictional spaceships, which is a little bit sad, which is one of the reasons why I wanted to write this book, to let people know that um, not every crashed spaceship of the past uh, was real. (laughs) And what does that mean about modern ones? I'm not sure. Yeah, I I think probably there is a town or two that have used uh, crashed spaceship stories to attract tourism. They don't don't mind that people belly up to the bar in their, their local watering hole. You uh, you have some great examples of some of the best authors of all time who use uh, aliens and spaceships, things of that sort, as literary devices. I'm thinking about Washington Irving, for example. I didn't know he had written some of the stuff that you highlight in this book. Yeah, yeah, because um, what what he did was to write a book uh, called A History of New York, published in 1809, and his story was about the Earth being under attack by a group of green-skinned uh, moon men who saw humans as primitive animals. And they sent a mission to, to colonize the Earth with the goal of converting the wild and unfaithful people to their, to their moon ways. So they, they managed to defeat the Earth's armies by riding winged horses with eagle heads and using armor that deflected bullets and, and cannon fire, then they actually capture the world leaders, uh, including Napoleon and, and the president of the United States, and take them back to the moon as, as prisoners. And they said that the colonization of Earth was considered a great success. And that was 1809. So there we're talking about um, an invasion of Earth. We're talking about um, abduction and even green-skinned um, extraterrestrials. So all of these ideas are so incredibly old. You have some uh, instances that are basically made-up stories that are incredibly similar to what we consider to be factual uh, encounters, uh, the, the ki- types of beings, what we would call greys, uh, short, skinny little uh, uh, creatures, as well as uh, encounters with Nordics, which are still, people are still seeing those today. Um, give me your, your general take on the stories that were presumably made up back then and their similarities to what are supposedly factual now. Yeah, it's a, it's a very interesting um, problem. It's almost a dilemma in a sense, because what do we do with the fact that uh, from 1848, uh, People actually wrote stories about uh, beings uh, who arrived on Earth in spaceships and were blonde, blue-eyed, and, and basically they looked like Scandinavians. Um, and it's what were later called called Nordics um, by ufologists, which is a term which, of course, was um, actually in, in, invented by um, anthropologists in the 19th century who reached the conclusion that that um, superior beings in the universe uh, would naturally look like that. They would naturally have blue eyes and uh, and blonde hair and basically look like Captain America. Um, So it's a bit of a problem to to see that this this figure of a Nordic alien, a Nordic entity, was invented um, by, by anthropologists 
they weren't talking about aliens at the time, just the idea that that superior beings would look like this. And then you, you, we find the same stories uh, as today, uh, all the way through the 19th century, in which every extraterrestrial um, sort of conforms to that to that general description, uh, because they were because people thought that any alien able to to, to reach Earth had to look like that because they would be much more advanced than, than normal humans. So we, we have two choices here. Either, either we, we reach the conclusion that, uh, yeah, um, aliens really can look like um, Nordic entities, or this is just a continuation of something that was invented in the middle of the 19th century. And not for very good reasons either, because, of course, this was um, a very racist concept. Uh, the same people who, who believed that, um, that, that superior entities were blue-eyed and blonde-haired believed that uh, people of other colors, other nationalities, um, were incredibly inferior, which is why, at the time, uh, a lot of people began to think that maybe Adam and Eve had come from other planets. I mean, even in, in the middle of the 19th century, this, this theory was quite popular. And that Adam and Eve would have been white-skinned, blue-eyed, and, and blonde-haired, which meant that the Chinese and the Africans and so on must have come from inferior planets. <laughs> of course, the, the, these are very racist ideas, but, um, you know, these days... It's, we still have this idea of the, of the Nordic entity. What, what does that mean? And in the book, I'm not saying that this is definitely something made up. I'm not saying that we shouldn't believe in these things these days. Maybe Nordic entities exist. I don't know. Maybe some of your listeners have, have met one. But um, we, we need to open up these questions. Well, of course, we don't know what any of these things, if they're actually visitors, really look like. They seem to be able to take different forms and try to appeal to us one way or another. You uh, you write about uh, things that get really messy, where we start mixing in stories about uh, alien visitors, uh, life on other planets, and spiritualism here. I think Victor Hugo, is that is that what he get involved with? Yeah, it's very interesting actually because um, Victor Victor Hugo was the uh, was a, a French author um, of Les Misérables, for example, and this was a period when um, spiritualism was um, was a major movement uh, throughout the world, and there was this practice of, of talking tables or or, ter- or table turning, which was really popular in in Europe in the in the eighteen fifties, and this involved people sitting around a table, placing their hands on it and, and waiting, waiting for it to move, just like in, in, the, in the horror movies. And um, it was a kind of Ouija, like a Ouija board. Then um, Victor, Victor Hugo um, also uh, participated in this, in this practice of table turning. And once he had a conversation with a Jupiterian, someone from Jupiter, uh, called Tiatiafia, uh, who who sort of had a uh, who spoke to him about about um, life on Jupiter and asked questions about about life on Earth because at that time um, people practicing spiritualism didn't only try to communicate with with the spirits of departed um, mortals but also with um, with uh, spirits on other planets and so it was a it was an amazing time because for several decades. Um, there was this idea that um, anybody could have a chat with um, with a Martian, 
or, or Venusian just by sitting around a table and, and, and joining mm. hands with, with, with friends. So, uh, yeah, it's, um, it was a very, very interesting time to be alive. It gets messy, too, if uh, spiritualists, as, as many were, uh, get discredited. It reflects badly on the notion that there is life on other planets. If they're not talking to spirits, then who the heck are they talking to on these other planets? <laughs> that's true. That's true. But at, at, at the same time, there, there, was, there was so much interest in, in the possibility that we were being visited um, in, uh, you know, by, by spaceships. Uh, with uh, delegations of Martians or Venusians or whatever, that it wouldn't have had such a terrible impact. And in any case, uh, spiritualism of this kind um, carried on into the into the 20th century. So there's an overlap between this kind of practice and then the start of of the flying saucer era in 1947. One of the people who took a shot at writing a novel uh, that involved uh, people on other planets was an astronomer named Kepler, who is a pretty famous guy. Uh, who he took his own stab at this. What do you make of his his book? Um, yeah, of course. I mean, um, a lot of a lot of these these authors did actually um, try to 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 rationalize um, life in the universe, thinking that maybe um, you know. It was possible that uh, that there were other planets and things uh, full of full of people. Then, um, when when Johannes Kepler in in 1634 uh, published a book called called Somnium, um, it was about an Icelandic traveller who was transported to the moon by by aerial demons. Um, and this was something which uh, a lot of people speculated about at the time. Maybe demons were were able to traverse the the solar system, and maybe even um, take uh, the souls of, of the dying or the dead and um, whisk them off to some other part of, of, of the cosmos, to some dark planet uh, full, of, full of evil beings. Uh, this, this was actually a very common um, thought at the time. I mean, we're talking about the 17th century there. Uh, I don't think today that's reflected in any part of... Um, of, of, of ufology, I'm not entirely sure, but I believe that the idea that that uh, demons living on other planets taking human souls, I haven't heard of that, um, at least in the 21st century. You do get into uh, very specific details about various religions and how they uh, appropriated the story and made use of their own. We're going to do that in the next hour. I wanted to ask you in the time we have remaining in this segment about uh, the first contactee. Uh, that your book identifies, I think it's Swedenborg. Is that the name? Yeah, that's right. Um, Swedenborg was uh, a very, very interesting um, contactee. Uh, uh, Swedish. He was an intellectual. We're talking about the uh, 16th, 17th century. Um, he he wrote a book um, called uh, Earth in the in the Universe, and he spoke about how. Um, he was taken to all kinds of planets, even uh, planets outside the solar system, where he um, saw um, life on other planets. And he even spoke about the Mercurians, people from Mercury, who had a very strong parallel with, with modern, modern-day uh, aliens because they, they wore these seamless, uh, tight um, clothes made of unusual fabrics and could even read minds and try to absorb 
people's thoughts because the idea was that they were obsessed with getting information about 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 the universe. So um, that's a very strong parallel with with modern contactees. Yeah, that was a really interesting chapter. You go into a lot of detail about and it, uh, so much of what he wrote back then. It seems preposterous that he traveled to other planets, but it sure resonates and, and is similar to a lot of accounts that we hear now. We're talking with Chris Aubeck about uh, Alien Artifacts, Volume 1. How many volumes do you think you're going to have? It sounds like you've got a heck of a lot of material. Well, in fact, there's going to be uh, three volumes, and... Um, I imagine that I could actually write write several more, but all of this, in fact, is is part of a of a bigger plan um, that I have this year to to finally publish all of the all of the findings I've made over the last twenty years. Many of which um, support the the idea that something really weird has happened in the past and 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 still happens today. But this this uh, this series of books, Alien Artifacts, provides. Uh, a context, uh, the social and cultural context that we need to understand if if we want to know whether uh, what's happening today um, has any echo uh, in the past. We we need to know where a lot of the ideas uh, that we have these days um, actually came from. And um, it's just something that, that had never been uh, done before. And then one thing I haven't mentioned so far in any interviews is that this year I'm also going to release a refresh of Wonders in the Sky. Oh, uh, hold on. Uh, Chris, we're going to have to take a break. Hold on just a second. I want to get into that in the next segment here. I want to hear about that because that's just a wonderful book, and I, people need to know what's coming on that. We're talking with Chris Aubach. We're going to take a break. We'll be right back with our final hour of Coast to Coast AM.